The Evolve Pod is brought to you by TriSwimCoaching.com. In this episode of the Evolve Pod, I'm joined by Jason Lewis. Jason was the first person to complete a global circumnavigation by human power, a 13-year, 46,000-mile journey across five continents, two oceans, and one sea using human power, walking, cycling, and rollerblading land masses, and kayaking, rowing, swimming, and pedaling a boat across the oceans. As part of this challenge, Jason pedaled the Pacific. He inline skated across North America. He kayaked Lake Nasser illegally, and he was imprisoned and charged with espionage by the Egyptian authorities. He's biked across Australia and kayaked Indonesia, a six-month, 3,000-mile adventure. These are just some of the adventures that Jason has been on, and I wanted to get into his mind about thoughts about adventure, how adventure has changed, what adventure brings to him, and what he brings to adventure. There's a real element of sustainability, using human power and how we can incorporate sustainability into our lifestyle, both as a community and as individuals. It's a really empowering episode. It's a really interesting episode. We even dip our toes into the themes around social media. So why don't you grab yourselves a coffee, listen, learn, and grow. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Evolve Pod. I'm here with Jason Lewis, author and adventurer, and yeah, as you would have heard from my introduction, Jason's been through some amazing things. Currently in Colorado, and it's very early in the morning for Jason. Jason, how are you? I'm fine. I've had my first cup of tea, <laughs> so uh, I'm just about sort of awake. And yeah, no, I'm very happy to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Oh, brilliant. Well, so a bit of background for everybody. So I uh, met, well, kind of our paths crossed through your nephews, Freddie and George, who I used to coach for their triathlon and some other of their insane challenges a few years ago. And one thing I noticed from Freddie and George is they had this just amazing sense of adventure. Um, and I never kind of really realized their sense of adventure until I actually ended up racing with one of them, which was was was, was an amazing experience. And then in due course, uh, yourself and your wife, Tammy, got in touch with me to talk about some open water safety for your wife on an upcoming adventure. And it was then when I met you and found out a little bit more about what you've done, I realized that there, you know, within your sort of family, there was this huge kind of sense of global adventure and that, you know, there is a chance to get out there and explore and, you know, see the world for what it really is, which I found amazing. And, you know, it's so good to have you on the podcast to be able to kind of delve into your experiences and, and help to inspire everybody to, to take the opportunities to get out and explore. But yeah, it's, um, where, where did it all, where did all this sense of adventure begin? Because it's clearly in, in within your family. Yeah, well, I got to say, like, my, my nephew's friend, George, they're like, <laughs> they're on a different level. Because <laughs> I sort of travel quite slowly. Yeah. I mean, so uh, I, I mean, just, you know, I, I like to use human powered journeys as a way to, yeah. to experience the world. And, 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 and but Fred and George, they're um, they, they do these ultra um, <clears throat> these ultra endurance events that <clears throat> Ali, you are kind of partly responsible for, like, <laughs> maybe <laughs> I don't, a little I don't bit, think, yeah. yeah, my sister. My, their, my my sister basically is um, their their mum and their father. I don't think you're 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 that popular. I'm just kidding. No, because because <laughs> their dad was like, why 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 am I why are my sons doing these crazy you know like doing um, Iron Man and and cycling in like four days to to Gibraltar and so I mean <clears throat> I'm just amazed at what they've done because it's a, it's a, almost at the opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, they are in they are serious athletes such as yourself and and their and, and what they've achieved uh you know with their expeditions is 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 kind of remarkable but for me i started out really as a non uh I'd, I'd never done expeditions before um you know i've been as a family we've always been quite into the outdoors uh going on camping trips my uh, my father was uh was ex services so we used to go on you know trips to wales and and we we did go to different countries because he was posted to East Africa and to the Middle East. And so we did have that sense of, yeah, we're, we're not just kind of, um, you know, stuck in the UK. So I suppose in a way that was quite a, um, a looking back, I was quite lucky to have that early experience of, of, of traveling to different countries. 
and, and being exposed to different cultures and different ways of thinking. So fast forward to when I was 21 or thereabouts, uh, left college. My An old friend from college uh, actually, um, he was working as, envir as an environmental scientist uh, uh, in sort of the early, late 80s, early 90s. And he thought of this idea to go around the planet using just human power, which hadn't been, hadn't been done before. And um, so the idea was to uh, not use any motorized transport, just use human power. Um, so obviously biking, walking um, across the land masses, um, rollerblading perhaps, uh, we could kayak between the islands, we could, we could swim between some of the islands as well in Indonesia or, or some of the rivers. Uh, and we built a boat powered by pedals to cross the oceans. So this was uh, my friend Steve Smith's idea and he kind of wrote me into it. And at that time, I was a musician slash window cleaner um, in West, living in West London. And I thought, you know what? That sounds like a, a pretty amazing thing, considering no one had done it before. So I sort of jumped in with absolutely no experience whatsoever. So in answer to the question, I, I basically learned on the fly. I had no idea what I was getting into. I'd never ridden a bike more than 10 miles before. I'd never, I was quite um, quite terrified of, of, the, of the ocean, of the prospect of the ocean. But it turned out that I absolutely, for some bizarre reason, I, I just love this way of slow human power travel. And sort of, and now many years on, I'm still trying to do similar kinds of expeditions to the global circumnavigation, but tying in sustainability initiatives, which I'm, which I'm sure we'll get on to talk about here in a bit. Yeah, absolutely. So they, so you say, 21 years old and you set off on this global circumnavigation so you can't even use sort of sailboat power it's all human powered so at the age of 21 how how long did you expect you would be sort of on I was about to say on the road for but <laughs> how long did you think you'd be sort of gone for on this on this amazing expedition so the original time frame was three to four years and if we had had the money, or if we'd managed to get sponsorship, we probably could have knocked it out in four years. You know, not having to stop along the way and raise money and, and do all the logistical things that are much easier if you have a team behind you. But we didn't have that. We, we spent, I think, a year and a half, two years planning the thing, uh, writing. I mean, this is back in the days before social media, of course. So, you know, writing physical letters, some emails, I seem to remember as well, um, and, and trying to get support. So we, get, we got quite a lot of equipment donated, but no money. So we set off, I set off, we had to borrow some money. Uh, my actual savings at that time was £319.20 that I remember taking out of the uh, Barclays and Hammersmith. And that's what I set off with to go around the world. I mean, how ridiculous is that? Um, because this trip was never going to cost anything less than several hundred thousand worth of pounds to be able to just do it at a, at a sort of very uh, basic level. So the so we got as far as we uh, as Miami. We we biked down to Portugal. Then we pedaled our boat, um, twenty six foot long, uh, eight, so eight eight meters long, eight uh, meter and a half a meter and a half wide. A bit like the ocean rowing boats that are now quite common that some of that a lot of your listeners might be familiar with but it's narrower than a row than a rowing boat so it actually goes a bit faster in the water because there's less resistance and so we reached Miami after 111 days after leaving Portugal and then we had and then we had literally no money we had the 50 dollars I think that a passing fishing boat had given us so then it was like seven months of fundraising in Miami and and then we were able to do the North America section uh, on bikes and rollerblades I was then hit by a drunk driver in Colorado, had both legs broken. That was another nine months um, out of the equation. So this, this, this sort of pattern of disasters, accidents, lack of money um, was repeated throughout the whole journey until we finally picked up uh, a sponsor, a financial sponsor in Singapore, 11 years into this journey. So the whole thing ended up taking 13 years for what should have been a three, four year journey. That's incredible. So I mean, this is going back into the early nineties, right? Or, or, yeah, we left or through, through yeah. the nineties. Yeah. So what was it like even landing somewhere like America in a pedal power boat? You know, that surely would have been people looking going, what the, really? You've just <laughs> pedaled from Portugal to here. 
I, yeah, it was it was bizarre um, because no one had really done these things before back then. Yeah. There were, had been a few ocean rowers. There was a um, you know the, the the community of of ocean rowers was quite small then, and so it was a bit of a it was quite quite a novelty. I mean, even more memorable was rolling up in like the Pacific, some of the Pacific islands, like the Southeast, Southwest Pacific and the Solomon Islands, I remember, after pedaling across the Pacific for 178 days from San Francisco through Hawaii and rolling up on one of these little islands and the locals coming out in their dugout canoes. And at first they're like, what, you know, they've, they've not seen too many outsiders before, especially in some of those really remote um, uh, islands around the Solomons. But weirdly enough, it was because we were doing human power. And once they understood, they're like, where's the motor? Where's the motor? And because they could you know, speak some pidgin English and we'd pull out the pedal mechanism and they'd all like, they just thought this was fantastic because they kind of knew what we were doing. And the fact that we weren't just in a big fancy sailboat or a, a, a fancy, you know, a big motor boat with, with blasting out diesel, there was this instant uh, connection between us and uh, we found weirdly enough that that human powered component was an incredibly powerful way to connect with local people especially indigenous people in in these remote parts of the world didn't have, didn't matter where it was rolling into a village perhaps in sudan in these in 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 africa you you're not just a tourist you're not just a walking dollar and that really helped our ultimate mission which was to try and look at see how things like climate change how biodiversity loss were impacting these peoples in these remote parts of the world so human power well, i'm sure we'll get onto that a bit later but human power was really the catalyst for us to be able to connect with people at that grassroots level that was a really kind of powerful way for us to to ultimately um yeah do what we wanted to do which was to which was which, which was to understand sustainability better from a global perspective yeah it's, it's it's really good i think the sustainability you know that you're aware of that from you know that that expedition you know because it wasn't really a, a massive thing back in the 90s sustainability it was just kind of like this is what this is the status quo let's just get on with it so the way you connected with the locals, do you think now, if you turned up at the same sort of place in your pedal, uh, your pedal power boat, do you think you'd get the same welcome or do you think the landscape's changed? I think I think you would actually in some in, in some of these parts of the world. I mean, they haven't changed that much. I mean, we've our, our society in the West, mainly our, our developed economies that are, of course, you know, driving a lot of these problems in terms of uh, the warming climate and uh, resource extraction from these remote parts of the world. You know, we've we've kind of moved on. Our, our lifestyles have moved on immeasurably. Um, I, I I could be completely wrong, but I want to say if you want to go back to like the island of Malaita, which is the one that we the island that we landed on in the Solomons, I don't I doubt too much has changed. I mean, of course, they probably have they have probably have cell, good cell phone network. Uh, mobile network a mobile phone network now probably better than we do because it's all kind of new infrastructure but otherwise i don't think too much has changed so i, I would still think there's there's great expeditions to be had great adventures and uh, storytelling experiences to be had by going to these types of places in in a in a in a vehicle or under uh, basically under your own steam that doesn't involve kind of a lot of you know, belching out fossil fuels I think there's still some amazing expeditions to be had. In fact, I've got one sort of in the back of my head to go back to the South Pacific. So I think they can teach us a lot about how to live sustainably still that can be applied to our modern economies. But yeah, I, I, so I, I don't know. There, there might be people out there who will say, no, no, things have changed. But, but I, but I want to say things are probably very similar to they have as they have been for the last 50 odd years. So if we if we look back on on you know the you know within the global circumnavigation there's obviously lots of sort of expeditions within that you know can you sort of summarize a little bit about what it is that sort of brings you to adventure and what it is that adventure brings to you? Uh, for me, it's a it, it it started out as a as a personal thing, but, um, because I think growing up in the UK. 
um, I suppose growing up in any part of the world, you you are slightly framed by your the influences um, growing up, be it from uh, your the parents that you that you had or by the school that you went to, the media that you consumed, that you were exposed to, um, that sort of shapes a lot of who we are. Um, and I, I think as a late teenager, early 20 something year old, wanted to find out, you know, what else, am, what am I capable of? Who am I really kind of thing? So there was a slight sort of young person's desire to want to test my limits which of course we all we want we all want to know what are we capable of, but also from a I suppose a more of a um, introspective point of view, like who am I? When you strip away all of these uh, influences, um, all these drivers from society, what is there underneath? What's what is under the bonnet kind of thing? Once you get into the wilderness, and of course there's there's no greater wilderness than than the ocean than the deep ocean. So for me there was a huge draw to wanting to, even though I was quite terrified of the prospect of, of going out into the Atlantic on this tiny little boat that was unproven, that had been built by a couple of friends of ours who had literally just finished a wooden boat building course up in, up in Lowestoft, and they had, it was their first boat they'd ever built. So it was like, <laughs> that's <laughs> we trust, were the total, right? <laughs> we were the total guinea pigs, you know? Uh, they didn't tell us that, of course, until we were actually about to leave. They're like, yeah, you do know we, we haven't actually be built a boat before, but, <laughs> but, we, but I think we think this one will get you to it should, the other It should side. float, yeah. <laughs> it, should, it, should, it should, should be good. So, um, but I was really, really fascinated by, um, uh, and I think I was already reading stories about people who, um, young, not necessarily young people, but people who 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 had left society to go out into the world, to go out into the wilderness, and and have that, and have that kind of wilderness experience. And so I wanted that, and that was my primary interest initially, at least. And 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 through that, um, through that journey, uh, mainly, especially going across the Atlantic, that was my first wilderness experience. Wilderness experience where. I just, everything just stripped, I was meditating, I was uh, stripping away all the layers of the onion. And by day 109 of that 111 voyage, I had this amazing, amazing experience of clarity and insight. Um, and that I've, I've written about in, in my book. And, and um, but that then led on to my sort of, I suppose, a bigger interest, which was we, once we reached the States, we then, um, started going to schools and we ended up going to I think 930 odd schools in in 37 countries and using the expedition as an educational tool to connect young people from different cultures uh, set up a bu bunch of programs connecting them through video exchange uh, photo all, all sorts of different cultural exchange programs and so the expedition for me ultimately it it, it evolved from being just a personal uh, quest if you like for self-knowledge to one that was more about trying to bring young people together um, to, 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 to help maybe try and solve some of these very significant problems uh, to do with sustainability that we're now grappling with um, as, as a society. Yeah, that's really interesting. There's, there's a, lot, a lot to take from that. I like the way that there's the, you know, on any challenge or expedition, you've got the, obviously there's, there's probably going to be some quite strong intrinsic motivators motivators but then also they kind of as you say they evolve into these extrinsic things that keep you motivated for almost a greater cause than what you can achieve and that's really good to kind of um to touch on those because they're, they're equally as important as the or probably even more so important than the intrinsic um, motivators that we all have when we un undertake these challenges i mean as we talk about you as an individual you know you've been through some quite terrifying things such as a crocodile attack uh blood poisoning <laughs> malaria mountain sickness and obviously you mentioned earlier about you know having both your legs broken while in line skating across america you know it's those sorts of things would you know for most people would might put people off returning to that sort of lifestyle what is it about those things what have you learned and grown you know how have you grown from those experiences to continue to want to experience the world and what sort of attributes might you have as well to be able to kind of you know to go through those things and also come back and go well you know what I'm fine I'm going to continue 
that's a great question. I think for me, there is, I mean, I, do, I have a lot of colleagues in that adventure space who do go back and they do similar, similar journeys, uh, perhaps because they're trying to get more records, you know, they're trying to get more records under, under their belt or it, it, there is a, I suppose in a way to make a, to be able to make a living out of something like this, the, the sensible way to do it is to sort of um, keep on doing something a little bit similar. So you develop your personal brand around doing, I don't know, peddling oceans, <clears throat> rowing across an oceans, whatever, like people get, people sort of know you for that, if you like, and they expect the similar, um, that that's what they key on. And that's, I guess, what you can build a, build you know get some money going selling books or whatever it is i i personally find that quite limiting and i'm not that interested in the personal in um uh motivation of of like doing something faster or doing something um you know in, in a, like a, in a better time in, uh, you know that's as, as an athlete I'm, I'm not an athlete basically and so that doesn't interest me as much as um, using these expeditions to go out the, into the world and, um, and, and, and basically extract knowledge that I think is useful to us as a society. And this is one of the sort of criticisms that I would have of the adventure space in the UK, certainly, is that I think we're still, <clears throat> this is not the, this is more sort of to do with, I guess, less, in, less uh, endurance and more like people going out there and on an expedition per se <clears throat> but I think we're still slightly entrenched in this sort of Victorian-esque notion of going out there and sort of walking a river or climbing a mountain and 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 it's almost of going out as a as a person from a from an affluent country who's able to do these things and we go out there and we start sort of patronize the locals by by doing something in their local backyard. And then we go back home and we, we sort of crow about, we, we make a big deal out of it. And I find that quite, I think we can do better than that. I think that the adventure space needs to evolve. I think there's a huge opportunity for us to go out there and instead of going out there and, and sort of showing off in front of a, an exotic back, backdrop, you know, and then coming home and writing a book and doing a TV series about it. I think I think there's a huge opportunity to go out there and learn from the local people what they're doing right. How do they live? I mean, my thing is sustainability. So I think there's a huge opportunity for people to go out there and to these remote parts of the world and learn <clears throat> how do these people live, <clears throat> excuse me, um, <clears throat> sustainably, self-sufficiently in their world. What can we learn from them? <clears throat> and it may just may not just be sustainability. I think there are lots of things we can still learn about each other in all sorts of different parts of the world that we can actually then apply or we can uh, where well, we can apply certain elements of those lessons to our lives back home to be able to solve some of these massive problems that we're now facing uh, back here in the UK, for example. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, it's good. I like the, the you know, the reasons why. Is so important and your clear message is sustainability you know there is more to it than that but it's a really good message to have and you know i think this the space as you mentioned you know of going and trying to do something faster or you know or there's all the kind of adventures out there at the moment they seem to me that they always say quite social media sort of heavy and i think the messages are need to be a bit more deeper and potentially a little bit more constructive than just going out and doing something as fast as you possibly can. I think, you know, I, I've done challenges before where the aim has been to go as fast as possible. But I think, you know, talking to you and talking about sustainability, which we're going to come on to pretty soon, it's a message that we need to talk about as a, as a nation and as people. We need to really put our heads together and try and make some changes. And I, I think, you know, hearing you talk about learning from, other communities and other societies and little things that we could potentially bring back and do better for us will only have a positive knock-on effect. Before we get into the sustainability part of, you know, what you do and what you stand for, words like sort of resilience, what do they mean to you? What does the word resilience mean to you? 
So I've thought about this quite a bit. Um, and I think if you'd asked me 20, 30 years ago, I would have said it's about um, just force, just kind of stealing yourself, just kind of pu pushing through, um, mustering the, yeah, the <clears throat> just basically being, uh, yeah, bullish about something. <clears throat> I think more, I think having pedal across quite a few oceans and, and done some of the things I've done, I'm, I'm pretty convinced it's about ad adaptability. It's about um, knowing when to uh, sort of kind of when to not push forward, knowing when nature, when the circumstances or nature is is just too much for you. And sometimes when you're up against, for example, I spent um, middle of the Pacific, I spent a month and a half pedaling on the spot, basically through the equatorial counter current. And this is where I really learned for me what resilience is about, where <clears throat> I remember the first, it's a 400 mile wide body of water just above the equator, where the water's running back uh, eastwards towards South America. And if you're trying to get to Australia like I was, then the water's going in the wrong direction and you can't go west, you can't go south because the water's funneling out from the Southern hemisphere. And I didn't want to go north and I didn't want to go backwards. So <clears throat> for the first sort of few days, I would you know, pedal 18 hours a day and then I would wake up the next morning, I'd have to get up some sleep. And I was back where I started from the previous morning went on for day after day after day. And I, I remember thinking like, okay, um, how do I keep myself motivated here? What is the reason to keep on pedaling when I'm not seeing any progress on the chart? Uh, and and uh, it, became, it was incredibly soul destroying. And at one point I did, after about a week, I just curled up in the bottom of the boat and I just had a complete meltdown. I'm like, I cannot carry on. I, you know, I'm, I'm done sort of thing. And then <clears throat> a few sort of half an hour later, I remember getting up and sitting in the pedal seat. And it occurred to me that if I didn't pedal, then I would ultimately, because this is a very remote part of the ocean, I would eventually run out of food and water. And, you know, maybe a, I'd, maybe a ship would go and come by, but there was no guarantee of it. So I just started pedaling and I had this real epiphany, which was after about, I don't know, I just pedaled for the sake of pedaling. And I wasn't thinking about where I was trying to get to. I wasn't thinking about getting to Australia or getting to the other side of the countercurrent. I just pedaled for the sake of pedaling. And, and then this, in, under, this uh, certain amount of time went by. And, and then I did eventually look at the, my watch and the GPS and I realized, yeah, like six hours had just flown by. I've actually made the best progress since ed, entering the countercurrent. And that to me was like, okay, that's how I'm going to create across this body of water by forgetting about the goal, where I'm trying to get to. Just focus on the here and now, just being, just pedaling, just focus on pedaling like a meditation. And so that to me was resilience, was the not doing, the Zen, if you like, of getting across this countercurrent was to forget about the other side, which is, sounds a bit cliched, but I think at, that was the only way that I ultimately got around the planet was by applying that same formula to other scenarios, not necessarily physical ones like a countercurrent, but also dealing with officialdom, perhaps trying to get a visa to go through a particular part of the country. Uh, it's just about knowing when to go, when to like, yeah, full steam ahead and knowing when to just like, whoa, OK, the universe doesn't want me to go forward right now. I'm just going to kind of let that go. I'm going to go sideways for a bit or whatever go back but it's knowing when to stop and when to go and and that's not an always an easy thing to know but i think it's it's an internal thing as well so that for me is the definition of uh, resilience i think yeah absolutely and it's one of those things like you said it's an internal thing that evolves and changes as you as an individual evolve and change you know i think if you ask any young bloke particularly what they think resilience is and it'll be grit your teeth and just fight it get through yeah. it but there's a hell of a lot more depth than that and i think as a theme of something that's come up quite a lot on the evolved part is controlling the controllables and then once you've done that there's nothing more you can do anyway and i think yeah. that kind of ties into resilience a little bit itself as well right um talking of resilience let's you know um 
almost metaphorically bring in your wife Tammy and fast forward to a couple of years ago when we uh, when we met and the reason why we met was because you were planning this um, Wales 360 expedition and Tammy uh, had you know very fearful of the water and we were talking about ways of how we could potentially get her kind of used to the idea of a capsize of unexpected water entry etc um you know and I think the way she dealt with that process well as we were talking before um was was hugely resilient and very very sort of brave but I want to kind of bring in that expedition in particular because it really ties nicely your sort of your you and Tammy your approach to um sustainability and to kick that sort of section off what does sustainability actually mean you know as a kind of title but also to you as an individual and and to you and Tammy Hmm. Well, for me, for us, I mean, partly because of lockdown and um, the virus, uh, we've all had to sort of think more locally in terms of getting out and and getting our outdoor fixes. And um, so, uh, and also, I, I just felt that in order to, as well as maybe going to some far flung part of the world where, yeah, we can learn from people, indigenous people, about how they're living sustainably. And that was like three or four years ago, I wanted to go to this little island called Tikapir in the South Pacific, where they've been living pretty self-sufficiently for the last 3,000 years, because they're an island. And so and people who live on islands can teach us, I think, a lot about how to live on the island of our planet, because the same principles apply if you're on a, if you're living with 20, 2,100 people on a little island in the Pacific, or if we're living on the planet, it's like, how do we how do we live in this self-contained system so that wasn't possible and it was going to be hugely expensive so we thought well what could we do more locally and of course in the uk i mean there's just so much there's so much uh going on there's so much opportunity and we tend to sort of uh overlook the fact that we've got amazing adventures to be had in our own backyard and um so and i think getting back to your question about what is sustainability I think it is learning about what we've already got, <clears throat> what learning from maybe our grandparents, our grandparents' generation. How did they live uh, more simply? How did they live within finite means? <clears throat> and also, how do people who, you know, not, not far from us, um, how, do they, uh, how, how, how do they do things? You know, we, we've actually, my, I'm convinced that the solutions are in front of our very nose. The solutions to climate change, living more simply, um, uh, how we consume the things that we consume, how to scale down at, on an individual level. I, I'm convinced that they're right there. We just need to find those stories and we need to, we need to tell the stories of these people, bring them to light through maybe an expedition. And that was my, that was our kind of thought was, well, let's, Wales, is a is, is really interesting things going on in Wales because because they're decentralised in terms of their decision making. A lot of it is um, devolved from London. Uh, they're able to make decisions locally that we aren't necessarily able to make in England. Um, so we wanted to go around Wales and um, again use my boat Mocha that I took around the world and uh, Tammy joined me and and so the the premise was to use yeah use a journey we were biking we were kayaking pack rafting pedal boating uh, around wales tammy had never done anything like this before and so that we were using our personal uh experience as a husband and wife i mean we fight a lot <laughs> and when you when we met you i mean we were literally like we were chucking tammy off you know, like a rubber dinghy into the River Thames and seeing if she would float kind of thing. <laughs> and you helped us enormously. And so uh, there was, so we, we, we did a documentary for BBC Travel about that. And I guess the point being is that we thought, well, if we can find, if we can make this entertaining and then also tell these stories of, of sustainability along the way, you know, find, find these people who are doing amazing things, then it's, we, all, we present it in a way that's not too self-righteous and not too preachy. And I think that is one of the things that we, because nobody wants, we all, you know, we hear sustainability, we think, oh God, someone's going to give us a lecture and it's going to be, you know, but I, I'm convinced that these, it, it can be fun. You know, we can learn about these things without it being like a sacrifice. 
and being a pain. And I think and that, so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to use adventure to tell these stories in a fun, entertaining way. I think one of the great strengths of the Wales 360 is that you're not advertising concepts. You're actually, you know, showing people what can be done by people who are already doing it which I think is a whole different ballgame to maybe we should think about X, Y, and Z, or this could work. You're actually showing people that are already doing it, showing that it can work. And then people can actually see that and say, well, it does work. Okay, I'm going to jump on board on that and have a go myself or like, you know, introduce something similar into my community. In terms of the adventure on, on the Wales 360, obviously it was a slightly different to what you may have been used to previously because Tammy was involved. And equally, you know, it's in the UK. Did you... In terms of all the adventures you've been on, you know, all all different corners of the, of the planet, did it still feel like a proper adventure, even though it was Wales? You know, it, it did. And I was surprised at that, <laughs> I have to say. Um, <clears throat> partly because, uh, uh, I mean, pedalling a boat around the southwest and the northwest corner of Wales, because of the kinds of conditions that you're dealing with, most particularly currents, the tides run really strong around the Pembrokeshire coast and around um, uh, Anglesey. It, it was, for me at least, because I, I was, I was still doing the navigation and, and, the, and, the, and the logistics, and uh, it was a completely different ballgame to crossing an ocean by human power, much more demanding. Um, you know, because when, to be honest, I mean, when, if you, if you row or pedal across an ocean, once you get hundred miles from land and you're, you're, you've, you've done your ocean planning correctly and you know, you're, it's the right time of year out of hurricane season, you get into the trade wind belt and you're basically going to get to the other side. Even if your oars float away or your pedal system breaks down, you'll eventually get there like a piece of driftwood. But, but going around the Welsh coast was really quite intense and was, was, so in that sense, it was a full on, I mean, going through, for example, Ramsey Sound and Jack Sound off um, just outside Milford Haven. I've never been so fast in a boat in my life. We were going 11 and a half knots at one point. It's, you know, going through like a cork through it, like a cork, cork coming a bottle. I mean, it was absolutely exhilarating slash terrifying. I wouldn't, would have, I wouldn't have wanted to, to have done it in a rowing boat, but the pedal boat was, was amazing. But it, 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 it was quite intense. And also, I mean, we, so we biked from the DS Street down to Hayon Wye, and then we hiked over the Black Mountains, and then we packrafted down the Mono River to the Wye River. And that was, the, I mean, going, even going down the little Mono River on a packraft, um, everyone said, oh, you can't do that. There's like fishermen there that are going to be throwing bricks at you because I guess, you know, it's a big kind of fishing. We didn't see anyone. We got one angry farmer. Um, you know breathing on a net breathing down our neck at one point but but it was it was it was sufficiently kind of like new like i don't we people i didn't we didn't, hadn't found anyone else who had packrafted the mono and it was it was uh it was quite hard it was really hard work and the doc for the documentary was great because we we were wet and cold and hypothermic after the first day we hadn't put on our wetsuits it was new it was different it reminded me of the early days of going around the planet uh, in terms of it, it, it you know it, it was right there it was like just a little river but in a pack raft it, with my wife it was it was it was it was a proper adventure so i was very surprised at that and also even hiking over the black mountains because we had a car we didn't tammy couldn't carry a rucksack she has lower back prep she has uh, degenerated discs mm -hmm. so we modified her bike cart using like some some conduit poles we bought from B&Q and a dog walking harness. We had no idea if this was going to work, but it, <laughs> it did. And we had a hell of a, we had a massive argument trying to get onto Hassel Ridge, which of course, you know, the BBC loved. Yeah, we need more arguing. Um, but it was, again, it was, you know, we saw loads of people, loads of people walk Black Mountains, but it, we, I guess because it was, because we were doing it in a slightly different way, it definitely made it like a real adventure. Amazing. And it, you know, there's, going back to the sustainability side of things, one thing I'm I'm interested in, and I'm sure the listeners are as well, is the concept of you know as individuals, all of us making smaller changes to make a massive impact on a big scale. 
what what did you learn in Wales that you know that we could actually or not just from Wales I suppose from from all of your adventures and your experiences what sort of things have you learned that we could all be doing on a sort of small sort of personal or family scale that if we all start to pull together on that front will make sort of big differences on a on a kind of a much bigger scale certainly in the UK and hopefully beyond yeah I'm convinced that it starts with the individual because I've been I've been uh, on this for you know 30 odd years now and ever since college Steve and I you know we did it we basically did geography and biology at London University and, and back in the late 80s we were very aware of the kind of problems that we're now, that are now a mainstream. But back then, nobody was really talking about them. There wasn't, climate change didn't sort of exist per se, it was global warming back then. So I've been sort of banging on about this and researching it. And and, and um, it, this is, this is you know, I've, I've been fascinated by what works, what doesn't work. And like you said earlier, Ali, you know, talk about concepts and people's eyelids come down because it has to be a human story. We as, individ- we as humans, we connect to other humans. We're a social species. And unless we can pin, unless we can uh, connect with someone individually, it doesn't matter how much data is there is on, on something. You know, we, we shouldn't be doing this thing. We shouldn't be buying stuff in the supermarkets that are covered in plastic. But we, we kind of can't help it because but maybe the incentive isn't enough. So what we found in Wales were, was that I think partly because it's it's a small country and you can do things in, in small places that you can't do in bigger economies. Um, and we, we came across, uh, we actually developed a, a video series on YouTube called One Person, One Action, which is rooted in the idea that, you know, we can't wait for government because they're acting too slow. Private, the private sector will get there eventually, but it'll only make changes companies and businesses will only make changes, of course, if it makes financial sense. So having to re completely um, redesign your business proposition away from the bottom line profit and to be, how do you integrate sustainability with the bottom line profit? That, that's really hard. That's really hard. And businesses are doing it, but for especially new ones, but existing legacy businesses, it's really hard for them to do. So I, and what we found is that individuals like the ones we met in Wales, David Kennard, for example, he's a plumber. At the weekend, he goes out with his diving buddies and they pick out rubbish from Milford Sound and the, and the area around the Pembrokeshire coast. Everything from lost fishing equipment, uh, which gets dumped by trawlers, uh, lobster, uh, lobster uh, pots, um, cars, they've fished out cars, electronics, all this stuff gets dumped because of course it's cheaper to do that than actually recycle it properly. And he's now started this, um, he started the world's first ocean cleanup dive group that now has become really popular. Loads of other dive groups are doing the same thing, but it's just one guy. Uh, also, um, uh, met an, um, an organic farmer um, up there in the Pembrokeshire coast who 30 years ago, he decided to move away from dairy farming, which is, of course, uh, quite high impact. And he now grows uh, local veg for 60 local families and he's non-GMO. And, and he's just, it, it, it's because that's what they believe in. And they're not waiting. These people are not waiting uh, for permission to go out and do it. They just go out and do it anyway. And those to my mind, are the people who then really create change from the bottom up. They're the ones who, 10 years, 15 years down the road, legislation does change. Another, um, Ashley, um, Ashley Smith, who we met on, on, down in, um, down, uh, on the River Thames, who started a, a big pressure, pressure group against the, the pollution in our rivers. Um, again, because Thames Water, basically, as you, as you probably know, the, the water companies dump sewage in our rivers because they're legally allowed to, but only because of this lo- these local pressure groups is the government now having to take action and having to introduce legislation to stop that from happening. Anyway, so the point being that change happens from the bottom up, individual people, and, and if we can all not just wait, and if we can all just do something that we believe in in our local community, then we don't. We have no idea what what effect that may have, and the other people it might um, it might inspire. And that, to my mind, is how we're gonna 
how we're going to change things for the better from the bottom up. It's, it's almost like a sort of sustainable butterfly effect, isn't it? You know, you see, see think, yeah, you see one yeah. person trying it and it's successful, or it, you know, it's not even successful, probably not the right word. You see one person trying something and you see it working, you see other people being inspired by it and feeling like they can then take that to where to their community. Yeah, I think definitely it's a it's got to start from the individuals because without any pressure, it's not going to change at the top, is it? Exactly. And it's, I think that's probably always been the way, but we just mm. don't, we look back through the lens of history and we don't see, we tend to see the effects of those butterfly wing effects, but we don't, we, of course, we maybe not was what wasn't recorded was, was actually the, you know, the precursor, the people who were on the ground in the trenches doing the hard work initially. Um, we just see the kind of the news headlines um, later on down the road. So I think, yeah, that, that to me is the way we get change happening at a, at a more systemic governmental level, which that ultimately is how things we, you know, will change. Uh, it does. It does have to happen at a government level, but government only changes if we demand it. We the people demand it. There's an element of you know younger, the younger generation as well, you know, being taught and shown the sort of there is another way, um, and potentially them you know taking on the mantle from people such as yourself. Um, as they start to kind of grow and develop and experience the world for themselves. And I wanted to put it to you in terms of adventure, you know, for the next generation of people such as yourself who are, who are looking to go out and explore the world on, on human power, what do you think the future looks like for somebody like that? I try to be optimistic because I, I do, I've always believed in the power of individual change and I've seen it with my own eyes. Um, how individual people can create uh, significant systemic change from the bottom up. I just, I think that there are always going to be, um, you know, when we were, when I was 20 odd years old, the paradigm was that you got, you went in, you try to make as much money as possible. Uh, you went into the city, maybe you went to London, you, you know, you, you were, you were judged by your peers for like how successful you were materially. And I never, Steve and I never really bought into that because it already seemed back then to be a redundant concept. It kind of made sense because we spent, I spent a lot of my time, a lot of my life broke <laughs> as a result, <laughs> traveling around. But I do feel like I have my integrity intact for but the most part. It depends what your values of success are, doesn't it? Which is an individual thing, I suppose. Well, that's the thing is that I think young people today the 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 benchmark of of how we judge success ha, is already changing and it has to change more i think like we in terms of our in terms of how we regard our peers and how our peers regard us i think we shouldn't be too we shouldn't be too um uh concerned about what other people think of us and we should be brave and if our gut and our heart is telling us that this is the right action and it might be to do an expedition that, you know, isn't necessarily that uh, exotic and to some, it doesn't necessarily involve having to go very far to another country. There might be something we could do very locally um, that, is, that is still inspiring, tells a good story and, and uncovers a piece of knowledge or, or somebody doing something right there that we previously didn't know about. And I just think that we should uh, we should be kind of brave in terms of our own conviction, and that is also we we kind of all know what we should be doing different, but but it, it's hard sometimes when when we're expecting other when other people expect us to maybe fulfill their concept of what is successful, and that is that is really hard, especially for young people. And then you get old and you realize, ah, eh, that's just herd mentality. You know, don't worry about what, the, but yeah, so I, the people who are going to make the biggest change in future and who in my mind will be the heroes of whether or not we manage to create a sustainable society and have a habitable world in a hundred years time are the people who are going to be those um, lights, if you like, are they going to be the people who strike out on their own? They're going to be the outliers. They're going to be the kind of the rebels who go off and they don't really care too much about what their peers think, but they're going to do it anyway. And, and they're the sort of the underdogs that I think I've always 
kind of looked up to and I've always kind of revered is that people in history have always been the underdogs who have kind of created change and we need more underdogs to kind of save us from ourselves going forward. Do you see those attributes and those sort of descriptive words in yourself as a young, you know, as a younger version of yourself? Yeah, I've always, yeah, I've always, I've always um, aligned myself with the underdog in all the stories and the books that I used to read and, you know, individuals who would go away from the known, from the norm, from conventional life. Didn't matter if it, not necessarily from the UK, but from, those were the stories that I always really keyed on and was inspired by people would go out and they would they would leave their home and their family and everything they knew and they would go out into the wilderness they would have a they would have an experience they would and they would come back and they would have something positive to contribute to to society that to me is what adventure is it's not going out there and and getting successful on tv and making a career out of you know I mean, that's fine, climbing mountains and walking rivers and all this stuff. That's entertainment. But to me, the earliest kind of adventurers were the ones who went out and they wanted to bring back something that would improve the lives of, of their family and their, and their loved ones back home. And, and that, that, that still exists in mind. That principle still exists. And we need that more than ever now. Because otherwise, if we stay in our little kind of bubble, and we never go out and find out how other people are doing things. Then we never learn. Nothing changes. And we need to be. And social media is not a particularly good way to learn about other parts of the world. It can be a good way. But it, 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 as we're finding out with the way that algorithms uh, skew our content that we consume, uh, it's, it's really about, you know, these big companies like Facebook and you know, they're, they're not interested in, they're, they're, they're making billions out of, out of driving us down rabbit holes of content that reinforce our own prejudices very often, our own biases. And hence, we've got the situation like here in America, where we have such a polarized society because people are just being fed what they want to believe. So that to me, social media is not the answer, although social media, I suppose like any tool, if you use it wisely, it can help. But to me, it, you still got to get out there on your flat feet, go out there into the villages, go out there into the wild and see with your own eyes what is really going on. And then you go back home and you report it or you do it through social media, because that is the only way that you'll ever find out the truth. Otherwise, if you just rely on what other people have posted online or what you've read in the newspapers, you only get a distorted, kind of edited, highly edited version of the truth. And that's that's no good for anyone. Yeah, I think the whole social media thing is oh, it's an absolute minefield. And I think for, for someone like yourself, who's, you know, I would say most of your adventures have been sort of before the world of social media was ever really a thing. And, you know, learning from those those experiences versus what people might learn from somebody who's doing something on social media, you know, you've got to get out there and experience it for yourself as much as possible to actually get the real experience for yourself. Um, so I think, you know, the whole concept of social media, we could talk about on another podcast for about four hours, I imagine. <laughs> um, but yeah, in terms of, you know, for you, what's what's next on the on the adventure agenda? So um, we would like to be able to do, uh, so we did Wales last year and it was just a proof of concept really. And we did a couple of episodes for tra BBC Travel, which were just, you know, small little programs, but they, it was basically to see whether or not the concept would work of using an expedition, a human powered expedition to tell these stories of sustainability, of to, to, un to unearth these individuals who were doing amazing things under our own in our own backyards kind of thing <clears throat> and to my mind that you know it worked I wasn't sure it would uh the key thing is me and I guess the personal dynamic between me and Tammy um to to make it watchable and entertaining uh so we'd like to this year uh be able to do the same thing around Scotland nice. or Ireland and England so we've got GB360 is a is a would be a stable of like four expeditions within the UK over the next three years uh, but right now funding is the usual problem um, uh, we're, we're just pitching out right now to various commissioners to see if we can get another commission 
And once we get that TV component in place, that then helps to, of course, get other sources of funding in place. So yeah, we'll know in a couple of months whether or not we're actually able to go out this year or not. And if we're not able to, if we don't get the funding in place, then we'll, we'll, we would like to write a book about Wales last year, because um, even though it's just Wales, the distances weren't that great. I think we still have enough, more than enough for a book there um, in terms of, um, in terms of the content that we, the, the, that we recorded on video and also <clears throat> writing in our diaries. I think, I think the lessons taken from both, you know, adventure and sustainability make for a really interesting read or, or, or a watch because, you know, they're actually so intertwined because on an adventure you have to keep sustainable, whether that's your mission or not, otherwise it's never going to work. So actually taking that concept of sustainability, not just for the adventure, but taking it back to our everyday lives, I think is a really powerful message. Um, where can people sort of find out a little bit more about you and a little bit more about the, the YouTube videos so that we can all sort of watch and, and start to make these changes for ourselves? Yeah, so if you do a search for JT Adventures, so Jason and Tammy, JT Adventures, uh, that should bring up maybe a YouTube channel um, that we've got going. Um, my blog is jasonexplorer.com and that has links to all of our various social media channels. I know it just pains me to say it but <laughs> we all do it right we yeah, all do it's it it's a necessary evil that's the thing it's a necessary evil i'm just i'm just fascinated ali to know how social media is going to evolve over the next five ten years because i have this complete love-hate relationship with it and maybe that's just because i'm an old fart i have a complete, I, I have the same i have a complete love-hate relationship with it i find sometimes i'm sort of trapped in it looking at things that I'm like this is bringing me absolutely nothing and then interestingly I, I listened to a podcast yesterday about the use of social media and the effect on our attention as as humans as a species and it was mind-blowingly um, interesting slash scary about how the algorithms that you mentioned earlier about how the the algorithms are playing on our negative emotions such as anger frustration hatred etc and the the more I kind of delve into those sorts of things the more I'm very very nervous about my children who are nowhere near the age that they're going to be using social media yet but if it carries on as it is and the age that they will be sort of around 10 when they might get onto social media of some sort I'm very nervous about that because well, they're, you, they're well, telling you feel like Zuckerberg and not and not let your kids but they you know post- 10, 10 years old and that you know their brains are still being kind of molded and growing and and mm-hmm. and the things that they'll be potentially exposed to and the emotion the, the emotions that will be played with on various social media platforms and then also the potential lack of control that I might have as a parent you know all those things really do concern me in terms of social media so you know I use it for this podcast for our business for myself but I would like to think that I have, you know, enough experience and I'm wise enough to know how to use it and what to look at, what, what to not bother with. Whereas a 10 year old, yeah, that does concern me a lot. Yeah. It's tough. We just had Tammy's 13 year old niece here to stay for the weekend and she's just on, <clears throat> she's on Instagram, uh, TikTok all the time. And I've just been going through some of what she's, and it's and it's very it's interesting, and I know you we got to wrap this up probably, but <laughs> that's fine. We've gone through the full sort of spectrum of how co- we communicate on expeditions going back in the day. I mean, our first missive across the Atlantic was a handwritten, well, not handwritten, sorry, was it was a, was a newsletter on an actual printed, um, you know, bit of paper. We put it in the post, and and that's to our supporters, and and that then, and of course, then ninety that was ninety four, ninety five, and then that changed. We got email, the internet came in 95. We got our first website 95, which was this clunky thing that someone built from us in, in Miami. And, <clears throat> and then of course we got email. So by the Pacific voyage, we having had no tech on the Atlantic, we had no, we just were using sextants and uh, very basic GPS and paper charts. Of course, when the internet came in, it was interesting because the, the 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 method of communicating was we now had email we had a satellite uh not phone but it was like an early kind of texting system made by this company called trimble but we could communicate with classrooms and through email but what was interesting was how much that t- 
took us out of the experience of being there on the ocean. I remember very distinctly like in sitting there in front of a sunset, instead of just enjoying the sunset, I was describing the sunset instead. And, and that was, <clears throat> and it just was taking us. So now fast forward 20 odd years, it's like everything's about the tech. Everything's about, you know, even around Wales, it's like, we're okay, how are we going to tell this? You know, we're about to go through this really scary bit of, you know, through this scary neck of water of the Pembrokeshire Coast. How are we going to be able to tell this story? You know, setting up the cameras, blah, blah. And, and so it, it, the experience of adventure has, has changed so much if you are sharing it on social media. And I just, I do have a lot of respect and I completely understand people who, you know, who say, you know what, I'm not going to do any of that. I'm just going to still do it the old fashioned way, write about it in a book, uh, in a diary. And then they, someone can read about it, you know, a year later in a book, if, if whatever. And I just, I just think from an expedition point of view, from an adventurous point of view, uh, the, what's now accepted as like, you have to do this, you have to do social media, you have to record things, blah. I, I, I don't know. I think the adventure space is going to be interesting to watch for the next 10 years as well as to how that changes, how, how we communicate our adventures, our experiences, how that changes is going to be really fascinating to watch as well. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, there's uh, at the very beginning, you mentioned that you still believe there's a lot of, a lot of adventures still out there to be had. And I just, yeah, how does that sort of tie in with, you know, modern day social media, et cetera? Yeah. And, and to make it meaningful as well, because yeah. everything is, so, I mean, getting back to my 30-year-old, to Tammy's 30-year-old niece, it's so surface, no sound. It's just, it's, it's like it's becoming that first newsletter we did that was actually quite rich, quite dense. You know, we were really able to craft the language so that when someone read it, they would hopefully get a bit of an insight to what it was really like to be out there on the Atlantic for three and a half months with no communication whatsoever. But now it's just like the way that we communicate has become so like, okay, so it's got to be 15, well, 30 seconds, definitely no more than a minute. It's got to be, so probably someone's not even, they're not even going to have the sound on. So how do we make this visually kind of engaging? And I think that, the, that, 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 that it's become so fleeting now and and there's no, there's so little depth to to the content that we're putting out um, that and even on television you see it it's become so trivialized, simplistic, and I, I I just I'm not I'm not I'm not I'm not on board with that because as people who do these things your your listeners will know who do do advent you know it, there is a lot more to it than than that than just kind of a, a like a forty second clip video clip. Um, it, it's it's like how do we retain the integrity of what we're doing so that it doesn't get completely hijacked by these Silicon Valley bosses who are making billions out of out of these out of our content, yeah, out of our experiences. Before we do wrap this up, it brings me back to the beginning. I think when you were talking about imagination, or it might have been before we got on camera. And I think if you read words, you then have the opportunity to create an imaginary concept in your mind of what those words kind of mean to you as you read them which can be quite potentially quite beautiful whereas if you're watching a video you kind of you get what you see which I think would then numb your imagination a little bit and I think you know the more videos that we watch them etc etc the more our imagination kind of is becomes sort of almost one-dimensional as to all the content that we're seeing again you know going back to my kids I want them to have their imagination. I want them to be able to, you know, do imaginary play and, you know, help the, use their imaginations to get to where they want to be and stuff like that, rather than what they're fed through social media. But um, yeah, yeah. And we don't, we, we probably don't even, we don't even have the research yet of how that type of uh, consumption of media is impacting our brains and, and indeed brain development for early you know, for your children, we don't we don't even know yet, mm. because there hasn't been enough time to research and to get the data. So that to me is quite scary. I think as a parent, you're very wise to to be thinking. Well, how how do we sort of limit that experience? How do we put um, barriers and boundaries on on that? I mean, if Zuckerberg's not letting his kids 
his, his kids on on Facebook. That tells you something right there, doesn't it? Absolutely. But I just and I, and I I just also want to finish off saying I I I think you're very smart also to have your podcast as audio only because hopefully it gives your listeners an opportunity to use their imaginations when someone's describing something or their experiences and and I think I think there is yeah the the kind of the even I mean I love listening to radio for example because again I'm just able to use my imagination and I think some hopefully that old style media the old style way of communi of communicating will come back a bit more because I think the way that we're going right now is is like you said it's very one dimensional and it's it's almost like how much further can we go down this road of just of things becoming shorter more uh, trivialized um, clickbait it's just it's eye candy it doesn't mean anything and it's it's like a drug it's in it, it's addictive and where does any addiction take us it's not it's not going to end up good I don't think no 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 Anyway. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jason, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. It's been really interesting talking about all things adventure and, and sustainability. I, I think there's a lot to take from that and, you know, for all the listeners to digest and to do a little bit more personal research into how, you know, we can all make ourselves and our actions more sustainable for the future. Um, please pass my, my best to Tammy. I hope she's well. And um, yeah, thanks, Jason. We'll, we'll, we'll hook up again soon and we'll keep tabs on your next adventure. Great stuff. All right. Thanks for having me on, Ali. Great fun. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, everybody, for tuning into the Evolve Pod. Really appreciate the listens. As ever, if you have enjoyed the content, any shares, reviews with your loved ones, friends, family, and colleagues would be massively appreciated. Look forward to bringing you some more content soon. Cheers, everyone. Bye.